You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown on 3CR on another cool day here in Nam. 3CR is broadcasting from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting Communication Mixdown this week. And my guests are Jeff Cockfield and Dr. Philippa England. I'll be speaking with Philippa in the second half of the show about a biodiversity stewardship scheme introduced in the federal budget in which farmers who adopt more sustainable practices can earn money on private markets. Spoiler alert, they're not buying it. First up, Jeff Cockfield on what the return of Barnaby Joyce means for the National Party. Jeff's an honorary professor at the Institute for Resilient Regions and the Centre for Sustainable Agricultural Schemes at the University of Southern Queensland. He's written an article for the conversation entitled Are the Nationals Now the Party for Mining, Not Farming? If so, Barnaby Joyce must tread carefully. I spoke with Jeff last week and began by asking what changes we might see with the return of Barnaby Joyce as head of the Federal National Party. There's no huge difference between McCormack and Joyce, but it's a question of emphasis and how public things are made. But then we come to the policy issues, and I think here we start to get a bigger divide. While Michael McCormack spoke against a rigid zero net emissions policy by 2050, he was much more... I'm on side with Scott Morrison's view of that's a preference, not necessarily a target, but a preference. Whereas Barnaby Joyce is expressing a view of some in the party that's much more assertive about, no, we don't want this. Partly that's ideological positioning. Partly that's about particular regional seats. But it's also about establishing, look, we have a different view. It's also an ambit claim of if you want to bring in zero net emissions, what are we going to get out of it? So you can expect some bargaining to go on. Is that the main issue that these tensions revolve around, the targets? That is a major issue. It's also illustrative of other underlying tensions. It's a party that very much formed as a farmer's party, but has had to evolve into a regional party. Now, as mining has become prominent in some areas, mining is one way in which you do get rural development. You do get jobs. And so you can fully understand why the National Party would be interested in mining investment. But of course, the problem it brings is, do they still stand for what their traditional base of rural and associated industries mean? Or are they sort of a lapdog of the mining industry, which is sort of a common accusation against them now? Yes, and I've often heard that the idea that mining brings in lots of jobs is misleading, that in fact a lot of the jobs that creates are experts they have to bring in. 
from international experts because of technology now being used in mining. Would you say it's still a valid argument to say it brings in jobs? You can obviously see jobs in the regions, but there are several qualifications around that. The first is that overall agriculture still employs more people than mining, so it is still an important industry. Second, agriculture in Australia is almost everywhere, certainly in the areas that the nationals represent or seek to represent. It is everywhere, whereas mining is much more site-specific usually, and so therefore there's a different distribution of the benefits. Third, while some agricultural profit and expenditure goes out of the region, it's much more the case that mining profit and money will flow particularly where mining companies have large contracts for supply type things. You have fly-in, fly-out workforce. A lot of the argument centres on national benefit, but that's perhaps deliberately misleading because, yes, national benefit, local and regional benefit, maybe not so much and depending on the investment. And here's where we come to differences in mining. If you look at long-standing iron ore towns, they've obviously established something over in Western Australia in which a town has been built. There are coal towns in central Queensland. Obviously, something has been built, including railways. But then if you go to gas exploration, that is a different matter. There's a lot of jobs in the startup phase, and then they're gone. And the maintenance jobs are very, very many less. A lot of water is used in some of these gas projects. And I imagine there's a competition or a tension for that water between farmers and some of these companies that want to do particularly unconventional gas, coal seam gas. Yeah, one of the issues there is uh, the water is one, and then there's also the size of the footprint. So coal obviously has a big footprint where it sort of moves down a seam over time. But at any one time, the operation is reasonably confined, whereas to sort of ensure a fair gas output you actually drill a lot of poles across a lot of landscape to get that effect and you connect them all up. So they're affecting many more properties and also they're intervening in what's below the earth, including water tables. And then there's direct competition for actual water in all kinds of mining areas as well. That's where you get a direct clash with agriculture and pastoralism. I mean, in your paper, you say there are places where these things can coexist, but there's many places where they can't coexist. At least that's how I interpret what you're saying. They possibly could coexist, but the structures you have and the historical approaches that have been taken to mining exploration, which has tended to ride roughshod, over various property rights means it's very difficult to get some kind of accommodation. And this was particularly the case in the early days with gas exploration, where there is a legal right to do gas exploration on all land almost once you have a permit, but there's ways of doing that that are more or less confrontational. And there certainly was a lot of confrontation in the early days. And I think this is an important distinction. So while coal is important overall for Australian exports, and it's obviously important in a few seats and few areas of Queensland. The current strategy of the government is focused strongly on gas as a so-called transition fuel. So in other words, the current policy favours the extraction activity that is perhaps of most concern to landowners. Gas allegedly emits less carbon emissions, that point is debated, and it's relatively easy extraction. But it's the product that probably creates the most friction directly between agriculture and extractive industries. And what happens in discussions both ways, opponents and supporters, they just conflate mining. Mining does this and mining does that. Whereas different types of mining do different things, create different problems, 
all have different problems and advantages. And you're talking about conflating mining. Often the idea of the farmer is conflated as well. I imagine there's a lot of diversity among farming communities. Very much so, even within regions. Part-time farming, small-scale farming, small-medium family farms. You have corporate-like family farms, and you do have some actual corporate farms, which have domestic investment. And then you have international investment in some regions. That varies across the landscape, but in some areas it's quite concentrated, including investment from China. You're going to have different sort of sets of relationships of those groupings with what else happens in those landscapes. We often hear that farmers are doing it hard. I'm wondering, are some farmers doing it harder than others? That is always the case. It's a game in which farmers have very little control over prices, unless you're an extremely large producer and have control of the supply chains. The last decade has been extremely hard in terms of making that margin that keeps you there. So it has been a very tough environment. And if you've just joined us on Communication Mixdown, I'm speaking with Jeff Cockfield, an honorary professor with the Institute for Resilient Regions and the Centre for Sustainable Agricultural Systems at the University of Southern Queensland. We've been looking at the tensions that exist between farming and mining within the Federal National Party and what Barnaby Joyce's ascendancy to the top job means for the future of the party. More on that right after this message. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. You're on Communication Mixed Down on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show this week. I've been speaking with Jeff Cockfield about his paper, Are the Nationals Now the Party for Mining, Not Farming? If so, Barnaby Joyce must tread carefully. In his paper, Jeff says the National Party's vociferous support for mining and opposition to emissions reduction is in part value signaling. I asked Jeff what values the National Party, well, some elements of the National Party, was signaling. What they are signaling is a kind of an anti-environmentalism because uh, climate change and opposition to mining are very strongly associated with environmental thinking. And they are saying, we're standing up against these kind of green people who are going to ruin your livelihood. That's the subtext and the clear message that goes with a lot of this uh, talk. And you can see from both Michael McCormack and Barnaby Joyce, the kind of language they use, no one loves us in the city and all the power is down there and all of the urban industries are riding roughshod and all those greens live in inner city Melbourne, you know, like Adam Bant and so on. It's just a whole narrative that they really bash. And it is actually quite effective out here in the regions, I could tell you, very effective. 
They are interested in the jobs, particularly in Northern Australia, but it's important for the National Party to be able to say, we're standing up for you regional people and regional industries. Even if they're not always effective at that, the messaging is extremely important. But there's something in it that seems to me as very backward. It's almost saying that farmers don't embrace new ideas. Farmers have been amazing innovators over the years. Yeah, I entirely agree with that. I think it is a very old narrative. You can really trace it from the late 1800s, this uh, agrarian sentiment around the importance of agriculture, the foundation of society, anti-urban kind of rhetoric, very, very strongly developed here, but also in Europe and uh, North America. And that combined with the farmers are always doing it tough and farmers are disadvantaged has a downside, a big downside in that a lot of farming is done at a high tech level. A lot of innovation occurs and we're wanting to attract people into agriculture and people with high skill levels. But here we have this 20th century narrative in the 21st century working against the type of image that would have a positive view of that industry. While we say that it's effective in the regions, whether it's going to be effective with farmers is a debatable point because you already have the National Farmers Federation saying we need an emissions plan, strongly rejected by Matt Canavan and others who criticised them, which is a very unusual thing for a National Party person to be doing. And you also have lots of farmers and farmer networks who are clearly acknowledging the need for climate change adaptation. And it is happening. People are changing their farming systems and changing where they do things in the landscape and in the country, like planting vines in Tasmania instead of just South Australia. It is all happening. And there will be an increasing gap between what farmers do and what the National Party is talking about based on the current trajectories. And the irony here, of course, is that farmers are one of the groups that's going to be most affected by these changes in climate that we're seeing. Some farmers will not necessarily acknowledge climate change, but when you look, they'll have changed their system anyway, just in case. So there's that division. But in terms of National Party support, it would be a very big step for rural people and farmers in particular to vote in ways that would directly oppose the coalition, simply because from their point of view, This party that's kind of ours, it's not really much chopped nowadays, but look, it's better than any of the alternatives. That might be the thinking that goes on there. You've mentioned Matt Canavan and him saying about 5% of our voters are farmers. It's about 2% of the overall population. So 95% of our voters aren't farmers or don't own farmland. And he's pretty much saying, it seems to me, that we don't care about farmers. I was very surprised that he was so explicit about that. Very surprised in a, in a kind of political tactics point of view. The kind of raw numbers in farm businesses, that's probably true about what they are. But there are a lot of people who are associated with farmers, farm businesses, and people who are maybe second or third generation away from farming who still have a strong connection, maybe do a small amount of farming, but don't count in the statistics as farmers. More generally, though, people in the regions have have a strong sense of the importance of agriculture. And again, you can measure this in surveys, including in many urban areas, by the way. So to actually start to be talking down their importance seems to me to be the kind of strategy that is a bit misguided. So I was very surprised to see that explicit discussion because in Australia, if you are seen to be bashing the farmers, no matter what complexion of government you are, is not a great political move. Very surprising to me. Professor Jeff Cockfield, and to finish our conversation, and knowing that Jeff had done research on the history of the Nationals, 
I asked him what Barnaby Joyce's pro-mining and anti-renewable stance meant for the future of the party. Gas runs out. You've got 20-year gas extractions, but gas runs out in some regions, and then so will investment. Coal is very specific. It's not a consistent thing that they can hang their hat on. But most importantly, investment is moving away from coal-fired power stations. They cannot get people to invest in coal-fired power stations, which is why they're trying to screw the arm of Liberals to get government support for a coal-fired power station. So investment's going to move away. We're going to have international trade and tariff arrangements that will work against conventional energy. Essentially, what I'm arguing is that I can understand why they're interested in mining investment as one of the only options for rural development that we have. But over time, investment will move away from that. It'll become unfavourable. And so therefore, they're on a shrinking wagon then. You also point out that young nationals are wanting to see some action on climate. Yeah, I think there will be generational differences. You know, what's the profile of the people who are most vociferous about this way of thinking? They're male. They live in the north. They're 50-somethings or more. They have a certain background that will not reflect into the future, even the young nationals, let alone young people more generally across Australia. Second thing is the regional problem. You already see the Victorian nationals very unhappy about the stance that's being taken in relation to mining and also the return of Barnaby Joyce to the leadership. And we've had some very strong words from some of the Victorian nationals about that. And Darren Chester really reiterating their connection with Melbourne their connection with the urban. It's a different geography and a different history in which they emphasise farming is important, connection to the urban is important, and mining is not important. That's a big regional difference that's already starting to show up. And regional areas are well positioned to host renewable industries. Absolutely. And this is another area where they're going to be left behind with their scepticism about renewables and direct opposition in some cases. Those projects are happening here in Queensland. They're all over the place. And I understand that's also the case in many places of Victoria, being driven, say, in Western Australia by farm groups. And of course, why wouldn't they? It's a potential additional source of income which goes directly to the farmer. Farmers do not get anything much out of gas except a bit of compensation or coal, except land is bought and that's it. Farmers can get money from hosting ongoing renewable energy sites, whether that be wind farms or solar energy. They can also continue to run some agricultural enterprises alongside those. And power generation is extremely important for agriculture, particularly intensive farming and irrigation. Renewable energy that will deliver cheaper electricity or allow them to generate their own, whether that be cooperatively or singly, is going to be extremely important into the future. And that's why there will be interest amongst landholders in renewable energy. So again, the Nationals' rejection of that or apparent rejection of that is against the tide of history at the moment. This sounds like bad news for the Nationals if they continue down this track of pro-mining. As a person who's looked into the history of the party... Do you think it's time for Barnaby Joyce to rethink his position? He is back in the job that he has coveted for many years. However, the next election and the performances thereof will be very interesting. I mean, one of the things is he's replacing a leader who led the party to a very good result in 2019, almost the maximum result that they can expect given current geography and demography. It's hard for me to see that there'd be any improvement 
on that at a next election. And the only way is the line of a loss. And if that starts to happen, what will the party be saying then? What will be their story about why we had to have a change of leader? I think he is there for a while. But I guess what I'd never underestimate with the Nationals is they can be quickly pragmatic, very quickly pragmatic. And if we see EU applying carbon tariffs, and if we see investment shifting heavily into renewables, which it already is, and if they see farm groups saying this is what we want, that is a fair bit of pressure. That thinking already has a good foothold in Victoria and southern New South Wales in many ways has a lot of similarities to Victorian regional areas. So the ideas spread and then you'll get something of a north-south vision and over time I would see that the thinking would be moderated. Whether that happens quickly enough for them electorally is another thing. They can adapt. It's hard to say that the nationals have a clear ideology but they do have ideological inclinations you know they're agrarian they tend to social conservatism more than otherwise they tend to economic nationalism and nationalism in general once something is very clearly of national benefit it's going to be very hard for them to resist that movement i think jeff cockfield an honorary professor at the institute for resilient regions and the center for Sustainable Agricultural Systems at the University of Southern Queensland. And with a federal election not too far off, it will be fascinating to see where the nationals end up on some of these issues. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. You're on Communication Mixed Down on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show this week. Staying with the federal government and farming, Dr. Philippa England from the Law School at Griffith University joins me. Philippa conducts research in Queensland planning laws, flood resilience in relation to land use planting, and reform of native vegetation management laws. She wrote a paper for the conversation entitled Nature is the Public Good. A plan to save it using private markets doesn't pass muster. So what is this plan that doesn't pass muster? Well, it's got three parts. A carbon plus biodiversity pilot project to develop a market-based mechanism to reward farmers for increasing biodiversity. An enhanced remnant vegetation pilot that will pay farmers to protect remnant native vegetation with high conservation value. A proposed Australian Farm Biodiversity Certification Scheme to identify best practice ways to sustain and build biodiversity. It sounds good. So I asked Philippa England what the problem was. Not that many landholders are taking up the opportunities that are there and have been tried already. And there are perfectly valid reasons for that. You need good baseline data, not always available. 
you need to sign up for things that can be monitored easily, not always easy to do. You need to have verification. So you need to have people coming back to check that you're achieving the benchmarks along the way. Well, life may intervene, there might be a drought, there might be a fire, the benchmarks may not be met. And then all this record keeping, uh, data establishment, that all takes an awful lot of money, an awful lot of time, an awful lot of energy to get started and to keep going with. Many landholders there are thinking, well, there's just not enough incentive or we don't know what the payment's going to be out of this to make that worth my while. So it sounds like a lot of farmers aren't buying it. These programs have existed for a while. And what's the story on them generally? Like, have they been evaluated? Are they workable? Have they been effective in looking back? The report by the Australian Farm Institute was based on a literature review of existing schemes and talking to landholders in Australia who've been involved in some of these schemes. It's very mixed results and it's nothing too grand is uptake by some landholders, generally bigger, more effective farmers that have got the economies of scale that can afford to invest in these projects. But in terms of getting coverage widespread that's attractive to a whole range of landholders in the areas where we want them, doing the kind of activities that we know that work, I don't think there's any evidence that we are um, really succeeding with that by developing these market and certification schemes as yet. You have said in your paper that environmental markets can't adequately compensate for decades of diminished government funding for long-term reliable measures to promote better land management. What has not been supported over the years by the government? For example, the threatened species strategy A report on that five-year plan, the preceding five years, came out just recently. And that showed out of 13 targets for reducing the rapid rate of extinction crisis that we're going through, only five of those have been partially met. And in several cases, that doesn't mean we've succeeded. It just means we've slowed down the rate of deterioration. There's a huge amount of work to be done out there in simple things, for example, controlling feral cats that aren't really very glitzy and not likely to attract a lot of funding on the global market. But we know they need to be done and they are very, very effective. These schemes you've just described have not been funded adequately by the government. The money runs on this project cycle. It needs to be sustained ongoing and there needs to be more of it. So the federal agriculture minister, David Littleproud, has said that the new funding is a win-win for farmers and for the environment. What do you say to that? One of the concerns I would have is that there's this substitution because the minister also says, I don't want the taxpayer to pay for this. I want the markets to pay for this. I think anything the markets can do has to be additional to sustained and adequate funding from the public purse. And you will find in almost every OECD country that is what is happening. How does Australian government funding compare with other OECD countries? Our farmers receive the least payments of any country other than New Zealand. So poorly, I think, would have to be the analysis In the past, the emphasis in other countries has been propping up production or propping up non-production, but amenity sort of values across the land. Increasingly, they are being redirected towards 
gaining environmental management goals as part of those schemes. That's where the rest of the world is traveling. And that realistically is the only way we're going to get the amount of money and the amount of cover that we need if we're going to take these issues seriously. There's a huge shortfall in the public spend. In Queensland, funding over the past five years for new national parks has dropped from $20 million a year to $7 million a year. Some of the work being done now is trying to an expanded set of goals, an expanded set of outcomes, an expanded set of participants. I'm not seeing anything in the proposals from the Commonwealth that get us there. Some of those goals would be better met by much more mundane and simple things, working with land care groups, working with NRM groups, and sustained funding over time. How are the smaller farmers who aren't as well off, how are they feeling about schemes like this? Left out and rather cynical. They do their own things and they're quite possibly waiting for a time when they can sell out, which isn't necessarily good for our environment or our agricultural production. So the government is pouring good money into a bad idea. Absolutely spot on, I think. Dr. Philippa England from the Law School at Griffith University. And that's all we have time for on Communication Mixdown. It's been great having you with us. Stay warm, stay safe, and stay tuned to 3CR. If I have my tongue, 500 languages I would sing to you. This is Monica Jasmine Caro. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara, and Mukjaiweit woman. I'm a spoken word poet, actor, and musician, and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love community radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.